the Transformers go full throttle bots. I'm Tom Panneries, and this is Origin Story. Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are! I don't know who you are or where you came from. Now on, you do as I do. Okay? Hello and welcome back to Origin Story, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and what I'm doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which was the first time I collected comics. I'm back to covering one issue this episode, and I'm returning to a series that I've already done three times, which is The Transformers. I'll be looking at issue number 30 of the book, which came out on April 14, 1987, with a July 1987 cover date, and had a cover price of a dollar. The cover is by Herb Trimpey, and shows one of the Throttlebots punching through a big monster made up of all the scraplets from last issue, and that monster is holding a Blackrock oil tanker. Our story is called The Cure, and our credits are as follows. Bob Budiansky, writer. Don Perlin, breakdowns. Ian Aiken and Brian Garvey, finishes. Janice Chang, letterer. Nell Yamtov, colorist. Don Daly, editor. And Jim Shooter was your editor-in-chief. We begin on Cybertron, where a group of Autobots named the Throttlebots are raiding a Decepticon fuel storage depot. They wind up being captured and are taken to Ratbat, who shows them communication from Earth where the triple changes from last issue are being eaten alive by the Scraplets. Ratbat decides that instead of sending his own men to Earth to fight with the Scraplets, the captured Throttlebots will go on a mission to destroy all all of the infected because the cure for the Scraplets is, as he says, a chemical so rare that its existence is suspect and only known through ancient legends. Back in the desert of the southwestern United States, Charlie and Goldbug from last issue are slowly making their way down a highway with Charlie pushing Goldbug. They come across a gas station and pull in, hopefully to find help. One of the employees at the gas station offers Charlie some water, and a drip of it fill, spills onto Goldbug, and as he watches, and he watches as one of the scraplets attached to Goldbug dies. Charlie, realizing that water is what destroys the scraplets, yells for some water, but is denied because, well, they're in the middle of the desert and water is scarce. So scarce, in fact, it has to be trucked in. Out in the desert, the Throttlebots arrive across the space bridge, and the Triple Changers, who have Blaster captive, attempt to fight their new foes, but can't even get past the walls of the crater where they're stuck. The Scraplets, on the other hand, sense more food and make their move. The Throttlebots find tracks leading out of the crater and follow them. It takes them to the gas station where Charlie and Goldbug have pulled over. They attempt to kill Goldbug, but Goldbug jumps out of the way, and Charlie throws a scraplet at one of the Throttlebots named Wide Load. He then pelts him with a pail of water in order to demonstrate how to destroy the scraplets. The Throttlebots explain that they don't have water, or as they call it, this substance, on Cybertron, and Charlie says they have plenty of it on Earth and turns a hose on Goldbug, curing him. Goldbug places a call to Mr. Blackrock at his headquarters to say that they need water delivered to this gas station. 
Nearly 10 hours later, the Throttlebots and Goldbug pull up to a crater along with Blackrock tanker trucks full of water. He's offering the cure, but since it means that the Decepticons are going to live, Blaster yells for him to simply release the acid instead and not worry about it. Goldblood gives the order to release the acid when all of a sudden a giant monster made entirely of scraplets attacks. They try to get it with the water hose, but it forms a hole in its torso around the blast and picks up a tanker truck throwing it across the desert. Thinking fast, Goldbug takes the other tanker hose and sprays it on the triple changers and blaster. They then team up and destroy the Scraplet's monster. The Decepticons fly off with the cargo from last issue, which was fuel for those in their ranks. And while Blaster is angry at first with Goldbug for letting him leave, he realizes why and lets them go. Okay, so the thing of the water as a cure for the Scraplet's is a bit too convenient. But it makes logical sense when there is no water on Cybertron and therefore there's no cure on Cybertron. But you have to complete a two-parter here, and what else can you do when you've got a setting in the middle of the desert and tiny robots that can eat away your heroes and villains? I mean, in the very least, it was entertaining. The action was paced well, and the jumping back and forth between the various scenes kept things moving so that I didn't get bored. Although I have to admit that I think there's a reason why I didn't remember very much about this Transformers storyline compared to the G.I. Joe storyline that I started covering on the last episode. There was an ongoing saga here, of course, but in most of the issues I've covered so far, I've seen that the editor and writer seem to be doing what they can to introduce new characters or toys to the action. In the past issues, it worked out pretty well, but Ratbat sending the Throttlebots to carry out a mission because he captured them, and them just going along with it seems like a way of shoehorning them into the story. I mean, I get forcing them to do the work that you don't want to do yourself, or that you can't get anyone else to do yourself, but when they get to Earth, they just seem to go along with it in a, in a well, what are you going to do sort of way. They're all ready to basically euthanize a fellow Autobot instead of maybe thinking of a way to double-cross Ratbat and save the day. I guess that's supposed to provide tension or something. And they do help deliver the goods at the end with the classic, we all fought a common enemy, but when next we meet, we will be enemies ourselves sort of ending. So overall, not much of a thorough review here, to be honest, because... It's a big fight scene with robots versus a big robot monster, and the continuing story of Blaster, Blaster and Goldbug as hard-traveling heroes. That's enough to hook you in and make me wonder what the next issue will bring. I'll be back right after this. Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue in release order tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the Quarterly Book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter Batman Doctor Fate Black Canary Fire Ice Maxwell Lord Oberon Captain Marvel Rocket Red Captain Adam Mr. Miracle Guy Gardner Booster Gold Blue Beetle Nort And many, many more. Justice League International Blahaha Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? Are you a geek looking for love? Do you long to find discussion on that special comic, TV, episode, movie, or toy that's just right for you? Then why not try Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast? 
Chris and Cindy Franklin can match you with that certain something to satisfy your genre-related longings, no matter the subject. Superheroes. But Robin's like, that was really nice of you, Batman. He's like, I had the room loaded with kryptonite. I can turn it on at any moment. <laughs> and here's the thing. It's, you're talking about... Now, think about this. It's an apartment building owned by Batman. Do you not think that Batman doesn't have their place but Sci-fi. I don't know. You talk about being a sex symbol and stuff like that. I mean, I know a lot of girls thought, you know... William Shatner was it, but I had a, the biggest crush on George Takai. I, 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 I did. I thought, you know. Sorry about that. Horror. And then when we see the Wolfman for the first time, he's in, I don't know, we don't know. A long that. sleeve shirt, shirt and a dark pair of pants. Pants with a belt. With, with a belt. belt. That's right. <laughs> and his shirt's buttoned up all the way, too. Yeah, yeah. And his so, arms. So after he changes into this ferocious beast who can't talk, and doesn't seem to be able to think beyond just attacking things. He, he has lots of dexterity. He went through his closet and... I like this outfit better. Action figures. I actually had all the figures and all the accessories up to a certain point. I really literally did collect them all. You know. Including Shira. I was going to get to that, but... Chris and Cindy have found their own happiness through discussions like this. I could be friends with him. I could be down with this version of the ultra-humanoid. You could be friends with the dude who put his brain inside a mutated albino ape. I married you! (laughs) Oh! If you're tired of searching for geek love, then sign up with Supermates for free at supermatescomic.blogspot.com or on iTunes. So as I was trying to figure out what to talk about, I saw that in uh, April 1987, Ferris Bueller's Day Off was released on home video. Personally, would love to do an episode of Pop Culture Affidavit about the movie, and probably will at some point. I mean, I'm probably going to end up covering most of the John Hughes f- films as it is, so I won't be reviewing the movie here. What I'll actually be talking about is the actual video cassette, and I've been down this road before when I talked about Top Gun's release on video. But when I talked about that, I rambled on about how that was a purchased video in the days when people really weren't purchasing videos, mainly because movies usually cost around $80 each at the time. So you pretty much rented and then re-rented them until you wore the tape out. What Ferris Bueller on VHS did for me was introduce me to the world of pre-owned video cassettes. It was around this time that there were basically four video stores in my hometown. There was Sable's Video Empire, which was more or less the mothership for all of us. There was Dom's Video, which later changed its name to Mom's Video, which was, I don't know, remember why. But anyway, that was closer, but it didn't have as extensive a collection. 
There was a video rental thing going on at Grand Union, which was a local supermarket. And there was Michael's video, which is actually a gas station, the one where my dad would take his car to get serviced. So basically, yeah, so basically this guy had a garage and, and a gas station out front. And at one point around this time, decided to get into the video rental business. I think he lasted all of six months. Right around the time he decided to get out of it, he began selling off his inventory. We wound up with two tapes, Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Stand By Me. And the Bueller tape had been rented and re-rented quite a bit because there were tracking problems right at the beginning of the movie and right at the scene where Mr. Rooney is picking in, peeking into the windows of the um, Bueller house and then he submerges his foot in that mud puddle. In fact, I watched this so many times that I remember exactly the sequence of events that occur when you start it up. It was a Paramount movie, and back then, instead of the FBI logo with the warning in fine print, you'd have a statement about not copying the movie in a background that would fade from various colors across the spectrum. Then, before the movie, you'd have a long trailer for She's Having a Baby, which had absolutely no spoken words. It was a montage of scenes from the movie that was set to this tune. heard the music in other contexts, but honestly can't separate it from that trailer because I've seen that trailer so many times. Another of the Hughes movies that had a really good trailer on an, on a VHS of another one is, uh, which is my copy of Pretty in Pink, that had uh, some kind of wonderful, um, and that's a wholly underrated movie that I'm going to cover at some point. Anyway, so you have the trailer, the Paramount logo, the beginning of the movie, and, and the way the end of the movie went, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, was that the credits roll right over the scene where Rooney gets on the bus, or at least right under it. I think they dissolve beneath the scene, kind of like the opening credits of Superman 3, instead of being side-by-side side with them. And I'm pretty sure that this is the only movie that my friends and I would watch all the way to the end of the credits every single time. Because it really has the best closing credit and post-credit sequence in cinematic history. Then again, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is also easily one of the best movies of the 80s. Funny enough, I still haven't replaced Ferris Bueller on DVD or Blu-ray. I mean, it's honestly not because of any sentimental reason. You know, I don't really have an attachment to my VHS. Um, I've been trying to uh, 
actually update my formats um, with the movies that I really, really want. I just haven't gotten around to this one, you know, money and stuff. Uh, I probably should. But uh, between uh, 1987, when I when I bought this, and then the end of the 90s, uh, early 2000s, when I finally made the switch over to DVD, I would purchase a number of pre-owned VHS tapes, uh, especially especially in the mid to late 90s. I remember the Video Empire in its last few years tried to go with the DVD format, but um, between the cost of converting the format and the fact that a blockbuster had opened up down the road in uh, maybe the last few years, if they just they couldn't sustain themselves and they eventually closed down which is sad because that was a really it was one of the original video stores it was from the early 80s it was a great great place um but they but they were selling off all their own videotapes and and i probably should have tried to buy some of the crazier like horror tapes they were selling because those are actually worth something and video empire did have some of those like crazy old horror tapes because like i said they've been open for so many years but um I was never one for foresight anyway, and all I took advantage of in their five for twenty dollars sale was like singles and pretty in pink and pump up the volume and like you know teen movies that I had been uh, renting and watching on TV for years. Still, some pretty great stuff though, and uh, and some of those movies took, seemed like they took forever to get a decent DVD release. Now I'd also dub a crap ton of movies in the 90s which I wasn't probably supposed to do according to the FBI at the beginning of the tapes but that's a whole other story for now however I'm going to go back to I'm going to be back on April 28th with a look at the next part of the G.I. Joe storyline that we started last episode and that will be G.I. Joe Special Missions number six until then please leave comments on the facebook posts or on the show notes or shoot me an email at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com i uh appreciate any and all feedback i'll try to get around to reading it on the air uh, either on this show or pop culture affidavit itself and until then uh thank you very much for listening and take care <laughs>